Yeah, there were some almost men that didn't come up here. Um, but as a rule, the women are here to lead. Love it. Love it. Welcome. Hey, we're glad you're here. Okay, thank you. I am too. I'm glad to be anywhere at this point in life. Um, just one other reminder, if I could. Wednesday, this week, is November 11th. And that's Veterans Day. Some of you I know have the day off work, so you're just thinking of it as a holiday, another day of vacation, another day to sleep in, whatever. It can be all that, but could you please remember that first and foremost, it's Veterans Day. And these are people who served that we might be here today. And um, we're grateful for their service, and we thank God for every one of them. And so just keep that in mind. And... uh, Please say a prayer for the wounded warriors and those that have returned home and they're not getting treated the way they should be. And, you know, our country ought to be ashamed of itself for the way we're treating uh, returning veterans, but it seems like uh, everybody's passing the buck. So we need to pray for uh, a real intervention and for God to do something great. I want to move on this morning. I've had the privilege of recently tour guiding you along to uh, kind of an in-depth look at the major themes of the incomparable book of Revelation. And uh, I've used no fewer than around 200 plus or minus supporting scripture. So I think we've backed up everything we've said quite well with the word of God. And we've called this series the back of the book. And by now you've heard it and you've probably heard enough and you're probably tired of hearing it. But here is a lightning quick review of the first six installments. Number one uh, was entitled, Think of God's Humility. That was Revelation chapter 5. Two was God's Patience in Judgment, chapters 6, 8, and 16. Three was Temporary Persecution to Ultimate Victory, chapter 12. Fourth was The Man of Lawlessness, chapter 13. Five was The Battle, No Contest, chapter 19. And number six was real justice once and for all, Revelation chapter 20. Your personal assignment, your homework assignment, I've been giving you one of these every, uh, every part of this series. So this will uh, really bring you to the back of the book if you'll do your assignment this week coming. And that's Revelation. Guess, you guessed it would be Revelation. Chapters 21. And 22. Chapter 21 has 27 verses. Chapter 22 has 21 verses. So just 48 verses in all, and you'll be at the back of the book. And that brings us to the final message in the series. That's right, number seven. Number seven is the the number of of completion, fittingly. And so I've entitled it The Last Great Invitation. And as I've done in all my messages so far in this series, I want to give you some warm-up questions, and these are what I call questions to ponder, just things to think about and to kind of get your mental equipment moving, get you engaged, get you connected spiritually, and have you thinking. I'm not asking for responses. I'm not asking for any kind of uh, audible or visible response to these questions, just questions to kind of deep-seed, get into your heart, think about it as I start teaching this morning. The first question is, what reservations, if any, have you had concerning what heaven might be like? Uh, Oftentimes we hear that phrase, uh, off-used, I should say misused, heaven on earth, or this is heaven, or... So um, what, what reservations have you had concerning what heaven might be like? Number two, of all the things that will be made right in heaven, which one are you looking forward to the most? That's a great question. Number three, how will God reward us? Or you could ask that question, how is God going to reward me? Or what will my reward or rewards be? You should be thinking of these things. And number four... What will this experience, heaven, look like for you? See, the thing is, we get so bound, so earthbound, that sometimes we forget there's more to it. And I'm going to speak to this in a moment or two, if you'll allow me. And question number five, Calvin Miller wrote this, and I quote, The world is poor because her fortune is buried in the sky, and all her treasure maps are of the earth. End of quote. What do you think Calvin Miller Miller meant by that statement? And that's a heavy statement, has a lot of meaning in it. 
and we're going to move in to our teaching. Now, the Bible is full of promises, some 30,000 in all. Someone's taken the time to count them. I haven't, so I'm going to take their word for it. But I think perhaps the most wonderful of all the promises in the Bible is this, and we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. However, as it is written, Paul said, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Um, There are many things we don't know about what heaven will be like. So for me to stand here and say, well, it'll be this or this or this or this, uh, I would probably get off track somewhere because it's beyond our human ability to even comprehend heaven. But one thing we can be sure of is that it will fulfill our greatest longings. It will dazzle us with its beauty. It will obliterate our greatest problems, yea, with its power and its splendor. It will be greater than anything we could imagine or dream. And it will be a place where love and joy will reign unspoiled. God, you know, is busy preparing all of this for us. So, I say, church... Let's give him praise in the house this morning. As I look over the the crowd this morning, I know many of you are grandparents, and uh, that means means grandchildren in your life, and they're either living close, and they come and visit you, or they drop in, or you you do some child care, or you play with them, or whatever. And some of them are far away, and you don't see them very often, only when they visit from far away, and so on. I can think I can summarize by saying, as grandparents, we make all kinds of preparations to make our time with our grandchildren memorable and enjoyable and happy for them and hopefully happy for us. Well, why do we do all that? Well, we do it because we love our grandchildren, right? Because we love our grandchildren, right? Right. Right. And we want the best for them, and we want them to be happy, and we want them to be to live a fulfilling life. And the point is, we make those kinds of preparations for our grandchildren when they visit or pop in, but how much more does a God of love prepare for the time when his children will come to his eternal home? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11, and we're going to be running through a lot of scripture this morning, so hopefully you're either going to be able to make your notes quickly or you're going to be able to move around in your Bible or in your uh, electronic device. If you then, this is is quite a statement, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And Jesus said in John 14, again, off-quoted and very often misquoted verses of Scripture. In John 14, 2 and 3, here's what Jesus said. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. I love those four words. That's certainty. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, unfortunately, and I have to say this, outside of what we call the church life or religion in general, and even, I think, I fear to say this, but I think even sometimes within, heaven has received some bad press. By those, and, it's, and it's usually by people who don't understand, and, and I say this lovingly because I've heard some sweet Christian friends say some things that just absolutely reveal to me that they have no clue of what heaven is, where heaven is, what heaven will be like, and so on. And when you don't, that's fine, because what we do is we conjure up something in our own minds and, and try to make it. You know, it's like when people say they, they don't believe in God. Well, God made people, but it seems today people are making their own God. And, and so it's the same kind of a thing here. And so people don't understand what God has prepared for those who love him. You see, people generally see heaven. You can even see this in, uh, in, in commercials and advertising and movies and so on. Most of this stuff comes out of that Hollywood demented mindset. People see heaven as sitting on a cloud, wearing a halo, 
little angels playing harps as they float through the whatever it is, air or cloud or whatever. And then there's others that see it as, oh, I think heaven's just going to be an unending, never-ending church service, and all we're going to do is sing the old hymns of the faith for all of eternity. Uh, That wouldn't be heaven for me, but some think of it as a sort of a celestial retirement city. It all seems like an apparition. Everything is so unreal. No matter what, if I went around the room and I had time that I, where I could just survey each one of you individually, we'd all come up with different ideas because it's so unreal that it's hard to put our hand really on it. No wonder so many people see heaven as a place of numbing boredom or secretly they're saying to themselves, ah, heaven, is that all there is? Is that all we're going to see or do or whatever? Now, a lot of this uh, thinking comes, I must tell you, uh, it comes from this general cultural shift that we're seeing in our nation and in the Western world today. We've seen it now for a good 30 years, maybe more. And people are getting more and more, and I hate saying this, but they're getting more, you're an exception, and more and more disinterested in anything that even resembles or sounds like Christianity, even, I'll even generalize it, religion, church, whatever. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read it yet. It just came out. It's called The State of Religion in Maine. How many know where Maine is? I'm glad you do. Anybody outside of here doesn't. Um, the State of Religion in Maine. And these are the latest takeaways from the uh, Pew Research Survey. I like the name of that, that uh, survey company. Uh, anyway, they surveyed the Pews. This came out on Friday, so it's fresh. This is fresh, hot off the press. I just thought this would uh, blend in with what I'm saying today and also uh, help you uh, to get a hold of what's going on. Americans are becoming less religious, especially the young adults. Because there's a demographic uh, shift uh, that's underway. It's not going to really be uh, totally fulfilled for about the next, probably the next 17 or 18 years. But if you're a baby boomer, you know what I'm talking about. That's the takeaway soundbite from the latest Pew Research Center. Uh, he did, they did a, what's called a research landscape study. What about Maine? Uh, they describe Maine as a state with a distinctive personality. That's for sure. Label, no, labeling us as ornery and contrary-minded. Case in point. Does this hold true with regards to our changing views on religion? It does. There's some areas where it may not, but it, it, it largely does, and that's, that isn't funny. Maine is the third least religious state in America. Good old New England, where the great revivals began. By the way, we're only behind two other states, New Hampshire and Vermont. That, to me, is heartbreaking. That, to me, could bring a tear to your eye. Now, that's fairly contrary-minded, especially in a country that leads most wealthy nations in religious activity, nearly twice as religious as the next three wealthiest countries. However, as the national trend goes, Maine follows suit with a notable decline in nearly every category addressed in this study. And I'm only going to cite three or four of them. Just how have things changed in Maine since the last study, which was done eight years ago in 2007? All right. Our belief in God is waning. In 2007, 59% of Mainers believed in God. Today, 2015, 48% of Mainers believe in God. So fewer than half. That's staggering. Uh, what about our belief in heaven, our topic this morning? In 07, it was 63%. This year, it's 59% on the decline. What about belief in hell? In uh, 07, it was 47%. I always love this. 63% believed in heaven, but only 47 believed in hell. So I, uh, I could go on and on. That's down to 44%. And I added my own postscript, and I guess most of them really are hoping there's no hell. And then uh, the next one that was significant is how, how many people pray frequently? Well, people are praying less frequently. So we're not talking about the outside world here. We're talking about everybody in the state. That includes Christians. That includes me. It might even include you. 
were praying less frequently. About 40% of the people in 07 said that they pray frequently or pray at all, and now it's down to about 35%. Uh, less inclined to believe that Scripture is the Word of God. It was only about 21% in 07. Isn't that awful? It's down in the teens now. And we are relying less on religion or faith, let's call it faith, for guidance on what is, this won't come as a surprise to you, right and wrong. In 2007, it was 20%. Now it's down again into the teens, about 18%. This is the latest, this, these are the latest statistics. They just came out Friday. The report was released on Thursday. And I'll tell you, it's staggering. It really is. And so people are not understanding. And I think that behooves us as believers, as followers of Christ, to get on Get in the game, get off the sidelines, learn the Word of God, grow in grace, and understand what's out there in front of us. I want to ask you, when was the last time you heard a sermon on heaven? And before you answer, I can answer for you. It was at a funeral somewhere. And they really butcher it at funerals. They really do. Everybody makes it at the funeral. Most people, Christians included, have no real understanding of what, now listen to me, what importance heaven is to this life here on earth, or for that matter, what heaven really is. And I believe Christians ought to know. There's so much could be said about heaven. Let me say this first. I'm going to say a, a, a number of things that will highlight where we're going today. First off, heaven will be real. Heaven will not be some ethereal existence where we float about as some kind of spirits without bodies. We've got all kinds of these weird ideas. Why would God take the trouble to create a new earth if there was not going to be anyone to live on it? Why would we be given new bodies if we're not going to live in a material world? It's my understanding of Scripture that we were originally created to live as earth dwellers in a material world. Adam and Eve were not created and placed on a cloud. Right? Some of you are looking at me like, really? They were placed on earth. Revelation 22 says that heaven will be Eden restored. We have been living east of Eden since Adam and Eve sinned. But the day will come when the original paradise God intended us to be part of is going to be restored. Thank God. And the new Jerusalem, the Bible says, is not going to be out there floating in space somewhere between earth and the farthest constellation. But it's going to, the Bible says, come down from God out of heaven. And I love that. That's not imagery. That's not some kind of parallel talk. That's the real deal right there. Now, the Bible contains this promise concerning the earth, and we find it in Romans chapter 8. And I read, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hopes that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Uh, heaven will be, I believe, can I say it again? A real place with real meaningful, rewarding work for us to do. I know you think that once you retire, you don't work anymore, and once you die, you don't work anymore, and whee! Heaven is going to be the fulfillment of a prayer you were taught as a child. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And the Bible says this in 2 Peter chapter, uh, uh, chapter 3, and I'm reading at verse 10. And we'll also look at verse 13, if we could. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. The 13th verse. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Love that. Love that. 
So, um, this, is, this is where we are. The old earth will pass away. God will create a new earth, which will be the home of righteousness. It will not be a pipe dream, but it will be the real world we've known, only new and better. So you're sitting there today and you're saying, but, God, are you, but Bob, are you saying that God is going then to create a brand new world? Could he do that? Really, could he? Uh, I like what uh, S.M. Lockridge used to say. He said, God created it. Why couldn't he recreate it? I love uh, S.M. Lockridge when he was speaking on, on creation. Listen to S.M. Lockridge on creation. The reason God came from nowhere was there was nowhere for him to come from. <laughs> this guy's already quite chuckled over it. Um, <laughs> Coming from nowhere, he stood on nothing, for there was nowhere for him to stand. And standing on nothing, he reached out where there was nowhere to reach, and he caught something where there was nothing to catch, and he hung something on nothing, and he told it to stay there. <laughs> and then all S.M. Lockridge would say, Hallelujah, brother, can I get an amen? amen. Some churches get excited, I know ours doesn't, but... I hope I live long enough. I've said it enough times and it's, we're running out of time that I could preach to excited people. But anyway, it'll happen someday. So I want... Faster and then we'll... Yeah. I want you, friends, to consider this. If this fallen world in all of its brokenness can be so wonderful, what must heaven be like? So, first of all, first of all heaven is real. Secondly, write this down, heaven will be right. It will be a place of righteousness or rightness. All the wrongs of the world will be made right. Be a place where everything evil is absent, everything good is present, everything sad is gone, only joy will exist, everything disappointing will disappear, everything exciting will appear, everything depressing will be gone, everything hopeful will come, everything violent and hateful will be gone, and everything born of love will prevail, every unfaithfulness will be in the past, and steadfast loyalty will be present, everything detestable will be gone, everything desirable will abide with us us, every sickness will be gone, and complete wholeness will take over our lives. Every struggle, every frustration, every failure will be over, and only ultimate success will be possible in God's new heaven. In Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And I just want to make note of this, for those of you that are making note. In chapters 21 and 22, we have a long list of what I call the no more things. All things that will be no more. No more sea. That means no more division and separation. No more sadness. That means the tears are gone. No more sleep. That's death. Sleep is death. Sleep is death. No more sorrow. No more suffering. No more sanctuary. That is no need of temples. No more sun. Not needed. No more sundown. No night there and no scourge, and no curse of any kind there, to which I would add no more sickness, no more prisons, no more hatred, no more greed, no more disappointment, no more stress, no more one-upmanship, no more pride, nor prejudice, no more defeat, no more despair, no more despondency, no more discouragement, no more divorce, no more doubt, no more depression. Hallelujah! That sounds like a place that I want to go. How about you? Every wrong done to you in this world will be made right. Every injustice will meet justice. Every sorrow will be reversed, and joy will wash over you like a waterfall. The prophet Isaiah, listen, Isaiah, 
hundreds and hundreds of years ago, wrote this in Isaiah 65, 17. See, I will create, God speaking here, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And he goes on to say, down in verse 23 of that same uh, Isaiah 65, they will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Bef- I love this word. Before they call, try this sometime, I will answer. Did you ever answer the phone before it rang? Huh? Try that sometime. This is God speaking. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Wow. Wow. Look, the corrupted, fallen part of the world will be gone. And God will restore the world to the way it was meant to be in the beginning, unspoiled by human sin. Everything false will disappear, and everything good and true will prevail. Once again, the Bible says in Revelation 21 and uh, 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written, is your name written? In the Lamb's book of life. Make sure your name is written there. Make sure today if there's even one scintilla of doubt in your mind. What is heaven like? Let's ask the kids. If you really want to know something, ask the kids. Well, Christina, age 12, says, everything is free. (laughs) Everyone lives in a mansion, true. No one has to go to work, not true. There are no house payments. (laughs) She pretty well got it. Although she forgot, or maybe didn't know, that our original parents lived in a resort. Some might call it the Eden Club. And God not only made all the house payments, he provided all the room service. The house payment started when Adam and Eve sinned. And God then closed the Garden of Eden. Now I want to clear something up here, and I want to clear it up once and for all. Contrary to some people's views, erroneous views, work is not part of the curse. Never was, because prior to the original sin, when all was right, God told Adam to do what? To tend and keep that garden. But after being expelled from Eden, work became difficult. And the Bible says amid the thorns and the thistles of the ground God cursed, Adam then ate bread by the sweat of his brow. Now, there won't be any sweat of the brow in the new heaven. Jesus promised a place on his throne to faithful believers who overcome. Trust me, this is a job you will want. So make sure, and make sure today, that your resume is in order. And then Molly, age nine, said this. Heaven is a place that is so beautiful, you would think it was make-believe. It's just perfect. You know, lately, I have seen, and I've also seen photos of, some beautiful sunsets here in our corner of the world. Some of you have seen sunrises. I still believe they exist. I've just never seen one. Um, (laughs) And I'm taking your word for it. Now, um, we've seen some New England foliage that is, you know what, basically? It's breathtaking. And And then somebody... Uh, I sent a picture uh, of the blueberry fields right now. (laughs) Radiant. I mean, we don't have words in the language. I don't think there's a language on earth that can describe this stuff. Uh, Just a few nights, what, three nights ago, four nights ago, Aurora Borealis was brilliant. Some people saw things that you just, I mean, they're beyond human comprehension. 
And, and you know why you're responding like you are right now? Here, I'm going to tell you why. Because deep inside of every one of us, everyone, no exception, we are hardwired for paradise. We know we belong there. And incredibly, that's where God wants us to be. He wants us to come there. And if we're awed, I'm going to say it again, by the wonder of paradise spots in our world, even here in our own state, even here in our own county, in a world that's cursed with sin and suffering and death, can we really imagine the beauty of heaven or an earth that's free from the effects of sin? Well, Jake, who's also age nine, said this, heaven is paradise. The weather's nice. It never rains. Nothing can go wrong. My dad will not have a scar in the middle of his head. We'll all be perfect. I like Jake the best. Can I get your attention for a minute? And and can I get you out of that, that little bubble, that little circle you're in that you call your life, your world? You're so, and you're the center of it, and you're so important, and it's just so amazing. And boy, we, we applaud you. But can I just pop you out of that for a minute this morning? Just, just, for, just for, many of us live, we're so jaded by the abuse we've suffered or by some wrong that's been done or by somebody else that we, doesn't quite see it the way we do or whatever. We cannot, sitting here this morning, listen to this guy babble on, we can't even imagine a world free from pain and misery. We're so jaded. Sometimes it takes a little child, like Ainsley, and she's 11. And here's what she says to show us the way. Quote, heaven is beautiful with no hurting or talking about people and no drugs. It's all good. Kids are laughing and praying with Jesus. You get what you want. What's wrong with that? You have beautiful voices to sing for God's glory. Sunflowers are everywhere. Street made of gold. And it smells heavenly. I like Ainsley. Here's the third truth. Heaven's going to be real. Heaven will be right. Heaven also will be relational. In 1991, Eric Clapton, ever heard the name? Anybody ever heard the name? Okay. I'm not sure what he does for a living. I think it's something to do with music. He lost his five-year-old son, Connor. How many of you know that story? Yeah, Connor fell from the window of their 49th floor Manhattan apartment. Clapton poured out his grief in song. I think everything he's written since has probably reflected that. And he wrote that famous song, Tears in Heaven. He asked this question in the song. I'm just going to leave this with you because I don't want to get tear-jerking you. Would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Would it be the same if I saw you in heaven? And I thought about Eric Clapton's words. And I thought, you know, that's a question to which a lot of people would like an answer. And the truth is, you will meet again. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. There's some conditions in here. You will meet again with those who you have lost, who have known Christ as Savior and live for him if you yourself belong to Christ and are committed to him. Our relationships will not be lost. Why would we know in perfect bodies, why would we know less there than we know here? They will be regained. They will be renewed. They will be re-energized. And we will function like we were meant to function. We will experience these relationships at a level that we've never known before. You talk about relationships. Deep, rewarding, fulfilling relationships will be the hallmark of heaven. See, on earth we let each other down. And we even disappoint each other. And many times without even knowing it or realizing it, we hurt each other and we fail each other. And we bump bump into each other just we're so clumsy in life. We all are. Come on, admit it. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 51, uh, 15, 51 and 2. He said, listen, I tell you a mystery. And I want to say something to you. When Paul, especially speaking to the Corinthians, uses the word listen, you better sit up straight. 
Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So wake up that guy next to you in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Not we might be changed. We will be changed. Now, the Apostle John saw a lot of stuff, more than any other man ever saw. And here is what he wrote, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he said, Dear friends, <laughs> when John says, Dear friends, give them your listening ear. Now, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. There it is in black and white. For we shall see Him how? As He is. Woo! I can't even imagine it. Our fallen, imperfect nature will be healed and will be capable of intimacy and relationships we couldn't even think of before now or even now. Our relationship also not only with one another, but with God is going to be healed. No more will our love for God be compromised by selfish love for ourselves and all the things of this world. Our love for God and our relationship with him will be unspoiled. There will be nothing between us. There will be no separation. Our sinful nature is taken away. We'll no longer struggle with sin and temptation and all the rest of that that goes with it. Our relationship with God will be intimate. So intimate that the book of Revelation describes it as a bride coming to her husband full of of love and passion with arms open wide, ready to love in a pure, pure, undefiled sense of the word. So, not only will heaven be real, not only will heaven be right, not only will heaven be relational, heaven will be rewarding. The Apostle John is exiled on the little tiny island of Patmos. And while he's there seeking the heart of God, God beautifully pins back the curtain of eternity for John and only John, no one else ever had that privilege, to see all the details of the life to come. And then John, he had one of the toughest assignments, if not the toughest. He does the best he can to describe to us what he saw. But I have to tell you, he's still limited by two things, language and experience. He's never seen anything like this before. You and I haven't either. He finds it impossible to fully depict what he witnesses in this vision. What does he talk about, Bob? He talks about walls made out of translucent gold built on foundations made with precious jewels. He talks about huge gates made of a single pearl and even talks about a street that's paved with gold. I mean, heaven is so rich, they use gold as paving material. Jewels are used for foundation stones. And if I could just divert here a minute... Can I just say that in heaven, everything's in its proper place? See? When we think of riches, and we think of honor, and we think of getting ahead, and we think of having everything we want and need and think we need, we, we, we can easily think of gold or something else that, could be, that can be kind of translated into gold. But where's gold in heaven? It's under our feet. Everything is in proper perspective then. Everything's where it needs to be then. You see, our relationship with God is all that matters. And, and, and I see this, this picture that John is looking at 
And I say, what a place it must be. He can't really describe it all. It's so rich. It's so real that the things of greatest value on earth are just commonplace compared to it. It is so beautiful that he describes it with all the best comparisons that he can make. Now, let's say you've worked very hard on this earth. And let's say you've been very faithful to God through your life. And let's say you've always done your best. I'm not saying tried to do your best. You did your best. And you've kept your life free from any major sin. Because, and let me just say that the the most used word that I've ever heard in dismissing people from church for over 40 years every Sunday is the word try. And I don't see it anywhere in Scripture that we're supposed to try to do this or try to do that or try to do The Bible says do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. And so you've worked really hard. You've done everything, not tried. You've done everything that God has instructed you to do. You've kept yourself free from any major sin, yet nothing seems to have gone right for you. Look at you today. Your health is bad. Your finances are even worse. Your children have made nothing but bad choices. And your relationships themselves are unfulfilling. And you want to say with old Asaph, the the psalmist in Psalm 73, the greatest, I think, lament of Scripture. He said, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. Poor old Asaph. He's feeling pretty bad. He'd lived a life completely uncommon to any of us, just kept his heart pure, washed his hands in innocence. Let me say to Asaph, and let me say to you as, while I'm doing it, it does seem unfair sometimes. Life seems unfair. And sometimes we kind of cry out from the depths of our soul, so where is justice? Well, let me answer. Justice is not far away, but it's going to happen in another place. It's never going to happen here. Justice doesn't happen in this world. Well, I don't know who did this awful thing, but we're going to do everything we can to make sure we bring them to justice. And that's what you'll do, everything you can, but there won't be true justice. This is not heaven. We shouldn't expect it to be heaven. The accounts are settled. Our rewards are given in another place and another time. This is what heaven is all about. It's delayed gratification, but gratification nonetheless. Here's what C.S. Lewis in his great book, The Problem of Pain. He was struggling, and he struggled, I think, through his life, through his Christian life, with the problems caused by the pain of life. And there's a lot of pain in life. We cause a lot of it. We experience a lot of it. We see a lot of it. But here's what C.S. Lewis said, and I like this, and I quote, Our Father, this is the right quote, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Boy, that is pregnant with meaning. That is some kind of statement right there. He's right. Home is on its way. It's not here yet. It's not here yet. Don't make the mistake of thinking it is. And when it gets here, he's going to make everything new. Jesus said in Revelation 22, 12, he said, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I'll give to each person according to what he has done. Wow. Wow. You know, every sacrifice you make will be remembered. Every good deed you've done in the name of Christ will be noticed. Every sorrow you've experienced with, uh, will be dispelled with countless joys. Every rejection you felt will be overcome by an explosion of love. Every work will be rewarded, far from every mistake being brought out. That's not going to happen, Christian, for you. Every good thing you've done will be honored and recompensed. Heaven will be real. Heaven will be right. Heaven will be relational. Heaven will be rewarding. And finally, heaven will be the residence of God. The absolute greatest reward of heaven will be God himself. The absolute greatest reward of heaven will be God himself. Nothing we see or experience will be greater than the fact that we are with God, our Creator, and we see Him face to face. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, 
Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Wow, 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 wow. How wonderful that's going to be to be in the presence of Almighty God where we will perfectly know him and we will know that we are perfectly known by him and we are fully loved by him. And if there was ever a tinge of doubt in your mind, that's gone. Here's what John writes again in Revelation 21 and 3. And he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. We will have no greater reward, my friends. We'll have no greater relationship, my friends, than being with our wonderful God and seeing him face to face. And so, beloved, at last, we say with the writer from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Aren't you glad he rose? And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow. If I could, one more time. I want to quote C.S. Lewis because in his wonderful books, The Chronicles of Narnia, thank you, thank you, don't wake the others around you, the characters who have lived in Narnia have now completed their time and their work there. In a closing chapter entitled Further Up and Further In, Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, has come for them. Why? In order to take them home. They're headed away from Narnia. Picture it. Some of you can because you've seen those depictions. They're about to enter Aslan's land, but they're met with familiar scenes. And one of the characters cries out, I've come home at last. This is my country, my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Precious friends, I believe that when we enter the real heaven, we will say, this is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And the reason <coughs> excuse me, that we love the old earth so much is that it sometimes even looked a little like this. Let me remind you of this but it will be a brand new earth, restored and redeemed. The place we were meant to live. At that time, we're going to say with the psalmist, Psalm 16, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely, surely, I have a delightful inheritance. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, those words you can claim as personal testimony. Yes, Boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. And surely, regardless of what life deals me, I have a delightful inheritance. Well, would you read with me, as we bring our series to a close, would you read with me God's final invitation to this world? It's found in Revelation 22, last chapter, the last chapter of the book. Verse 17. Can we all read together? Can everyone join and read? The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty, Come. 
and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. That is God's last great invitation. And let me just tell you, that invitation is to one and all. That invitation is for me. I accepted that invitation nearly 60 years ago. And that invitation is for you. And the dominant word in Revelation 22, 17, it's very simple, very, very simple. Come. Come. The worship team is going to join me. We're going to continue to worship. If you're here right now and you know this is something you need to settle today, I want you to take these few moments just before we begin to worship in song. And I want you to bow your head. And I want you to seek the face of God and ask for his forgiveness and accept his free gift of salvation. Just come. Just come. And then I'd like you to communicate that to a friend maybe that you're with or a family member or to Pastor Todd or myself. You can do it by using the Connect card that's in your seat pocket or you can speak to us personally, but we'd be thrilled to hear that on this day when we shared together the last great invitation, you, of all people, you, understood and accepted and want to take that first step, that step of faith, and move forward with Jesus Christ, your Lord, my Lord, and our Savior. Can I pray with you? Heavenly Father, thank you for the sweetness of this hour. Thank you for the hope that beats in our, our breasts this morning that this is not all. This is not even close to it. This might resemble it in a little way, but Lord, we're not even close to understanding what you have for those who love you and those who are looking forward to being with you. God, we've just scratched the surface this morning. I know we haven't drilled deep, but there's so much for us to learn and to accept. And so for those that are outside of that kingdom, those who don't have that hope, those who can't look forward to heaven today, I pray that this will be the day that they come, that they accept not my invitation, not the church's invitation, but your invitation for anyone who is thirsty to come and drink of the water of life. And as they do, we'll be careful to give you the praise and to give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.